Hello, and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Michelle Flor-Cruz. As the relationship between the United States and China has suffered recently, with disputes over trade, technology, human rights, and more, there has been no shortage of explanations for the downward spiral. Today, we offer some historical perspective via a pair of presidential summit meetings. In June 1998, on a visit to China, U.S. President Bill Clinton met with his Chinese counterpart, Jiang Zemin, in Beijing at what proved to be a remarkably open and relaxed summit. By the time Donald Trump and Xi Jinping met in China two decades later, all that warmth was gone, along with much hope for progress on a range of key issues. The two events, conducted almost 20 years apart, reveal more than just differences between the leaders themselves. They also serve as a useful barometer of how the U.S.-China relationship, once filled with optimism at the turn of the century, has become fraught with such tension. Orville Schell, a longtime expert on China, serves as the Arthur Ross Director of Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. He attended both those U.S.-China summits. And in a recent conversation with Asia Society Executive Vice President Tom Nagorski, Schell reflected on how Sino-American ties have frayed over the past 20 years and what, if anything, can be done to mend the relationship. Before we get to these two specific events and take a little time travel back to 1998, you said recently that the big picture story of the U.S.-China relationship in this time frame goes something like this. The birth of the policy of engagement, meaning engagement is a good idea, a good way to go for the United States and China, the evolution of that policy, and more recently, the death of engagement. That's a stark statement and analysis. If you could start by telling us what you mean by that. Well, I think if sort of the Bethlehem moment of engagement really was 1972 when uh, President Nixon and Henry Kissinger both saw an opportunity to really change the whole paradigm of U.S.-China relations, which had been in the deep freeze of the Cold War for, for decades. And they went to China. And because of a common uh, concern about the, S- the Soviet Union ex- expansionism, they came to terms with Zhou Enlai, the premier, and Mao Zedong, the, the party chairman. So they never spoke about engagement then. But the presumption was that we could get along. And then um, as the, that, that whole scenario, that whole narrative evolved, we recognized China in 1979 under Jimmy Carter. And then we began to get a blooming of a very interesting set of sort of uh, un, un, ex, inexplicit assumptions that if the U.S. could trade together, culturally exchange, do academic exchanges, and sort of slowly and and form a a tighter economic relationship, things would, I think the best word is converge a little bit at a time. So I don't know, you've taken us very quickly then from that Bethlehem moment to that first summit we want to talk about, 1998, where in retrospect, that looks like a, a high point maybe. How would you characterize where things stood in terms of the utility of engagement, the popularity on both sides, or at least the understanding that it was a good way to go, agree to disagree. As a paradigm, where were we in terms of engagement as a good thing in 1998? Well, what was so interesting about 1998 when Clinton went to China to visit Jiang Zemin were two things. One, it was less than a decade after 1989 and the Beijing massacre when we really thought the U.S.-China relationship would fall apart, and it didn't. And two reasons. One was Deng Xiaoping. 
he revived economic reform, if not political reform, in basically 1992. And the other was, um, you know, Jiang Zemin was a strangely warm Chinese leader. And what I mean by warm is he had a sense of humor. He was a bit of a clown. He was quite affable. And he really did want to contend as sort of a normal leader in the cosmopolitan world. So when Clinton came to China, and remember, Clinton had undone, just done a somersault. He had come into office speaking about the butchers from Beijing, Baghdad to Beijing. And yet he had come around to the notion that it was better to work with China than to, to, to eschew them and push them aside. And he had, ultimately, he, he, he gave them permanent most favored nation trading status and let them into the WTO. So he shows up in Beijing and quite counterintuitively, these two countries, which had almost shipwrecked after 1989, had a rather warm and an and open relationship, particularly between the two leaders. You wrote at the time, as I said, you've been uh, sort of zealot-like at all these uh, occasions there, watching them arrive, Great Hall of the Peoples in Beijing. You wrote at the time that the two leaders had effectively decided they want to let bygones be bygones. It's, was that a Tiananmen Square reference? Yes. I mean, that, the Tiananmen Square was a giant obstruction to everybody's uh, ability to feel comfortable with each other. And yet, in that summit, uh, you know, they, they met in the Great Hall of the People after a big honor guard uh, uh, greeting outside the, in Tiananmen Square. And quite extraordinarily, Jiang Zemin decided at the very last minute that the press conference, which would have an open question and answer period with the media from all over the world, would be broadcast live on radio and television. This is something that would be unimaginable today. And was unimaginable then. It was not unimaginable, but it was quite, quite a bold move by Zhang. And I think what he was trying to demonstrate was that China was slowly opening, did want to become more sort of digestible in the world as it was constructed outside of China. He didn't want to be a sort of a, a strange, big leader, culture dictator. And then what proceeded uh, was the most extraordinary press conference I think I've ever been to in China, where these two leaders, in a very affable, friendly manner, began to talk about subjects which had long been considered far too sensitive for such a such discourse. So it's interesting you say that because uh, just in preparation for this conversation, I looked over some of the press coverage, not just your articles, but many, many others uh, from uh, 1998 in this summit. And while there were some pretty significant agreements, important to the moment certainly, on missile proliferation, uh, you mentioned the World Trade Organization. This was really the beginning of the road that brought China into the WTO soon after. Uh, in terms of international security, India and Pakistan were on one of their many marches to the brink back then, and they agreed to put pressure where they could on those two countries. But boy, the press then, chock full of straight coverage, analytical coverage, et cetera, about that news conference. And it's interesting. It was only 70 minutes long, according to the accounts. Uh, but as you say, just sort of unheard of at the time, and of course, we're pre-social media back then, so this was what it was. No chance for the Chinese censors to do anything because it's going out there. And just to remind, uh, you don't need a reminder, but our, our listeners, Clinton tells Jiang Zemin uh, in the hall there, 
that the use of force and loss of life at Tiananmen were, quote, wrong, that freedom of speech and association are the right of people everywhere. I mean, what was it like to sit there and listen to this going out live? Well, to Jiang Zemin's credit, he grinned through it. He replied. He, he sort of stood up and said, we have different systems, different values, et cetera, et cetera. And he, he, he went right on. And it seems to me that that, that was such a rare moment uh, that a, a leader didn't sort of get so offended that he pulled out the humiliation card, you know, the, the face card, and bring the whole the, the whole press conference down around everyone's ears. And that's exactly the kind of flexibility and the kind of interest in allowing things to work out even when there are profound disagreements that we miss today. Right. That right. would be, a, a, you know, les majesté, a slight to the throne of the most grievous order now if a president did that. And I think Xi Jinping wouldn't even allow an opportunity for such a thing like that to happen. Yeah. And again, just before we come to the present moment, some of the, the actual, uh, you mentioned Jiang Zemin's reply. He said something to the effect that, uh, as you say, took it well and then gave right back. He mm -hmm. said, we could not have enjoyed the stability we're enjoying today. That's a quote. Had we not used force at Tiananmen. Again, an open conversation. They had a similar thing about the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. I think President Clinton said, I know the Dalai Lama. I think you should get to know him. You'd like him, right? Astounding. And, and actually, it was Jiang Zemin who raised the question of Tibet himself, which was unthinkable. I mean, he, he asked Clinton, he said, why, you know, I just was in the United States. Why are Americans so fascinated with what he called Lamaism, which was Tibetan Buddhism? And he was grinning the whole time, and Clinton took that as, a, as an invitation to go right off and say how much he, he liked the Dalai Lama. Um, so this was pretty extraordinary moment that... At the time, strangely, as is often the case, you don't see clearly. Because remember back then, a lot of people thought Jiang Zemin was a bit clownish. You know, he loved to sing Home on the Range. He'd recite the Gettysburg Address, and everybody thought of oh, this guy as, you know, really, really not very, not ready for prime time. But looking back on it, you, I realized that there was something quite amazing about this man. He wanted China to become soluble in the world. He didn't want China to be isolated, separate, and he didn't wear his pride on his sleeve. So what you've described, whether it's clear thinking at the moment as a reporter or your reflections 20-some years on, sounds like a, a profound, positive moment for engagement between the two countries. Did it bear fruit? in the years immediately after? I mean, it was, a, it, as we've said, it was a great news story. It was, it was an amazing 70 minutes. And then what? Well, um, then, uh, of course, China profited immensely from being uh, in the WTO and having most favored uh, nation trading status. And it, in certain sense, was uh, helped precipitate the China economic miracle. But then Jiang Zemin left office. And Hu Jintao came in. And Hu Jintao was very sort of gray, blurry, unclear, uh, I think lacking in a certain confidence, certainly in, in the stylistic kind of uh, bravado or, or 
interest in, in, in really getting out in the world and mixing it up, uh, he was much more retiring and reluctant. And it became a little bit unclear whether China really wanted to join in the world, uh, as Jiang Zemin evidently did. And there was tensions between Jiang and Hu. And before we leave, Jiang and Bill Clinton, worth noting that Bill Clinton quite famously predicted uh, after that summit that China would go the way of the regimes in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Looking back at the fall of the Berlin Wall and all the other revolutions that took hold in 1989 and after that, he said business engagement would open the country, the sort of China gets rich that you've just been talking about, also the advent of the internet and everything else. Um, he said, quote, uh, the spirit of liberty, unquote, would carry the day and then perhaps the most uh, carried quote of the day, that genie of freedom will not go back in the bottle. Now, it's, it's always easy in hindsight, but uh, that's maybe an appropriate moment to take the leap forward to Trump and Xi or the moment we're in now. And this is a bit of an easy one, but, but what happened to that genie of freedom? Well, so, so this is where engagement was born with Clinton. He, he started- Bethlehem. Yeah, this was the second, this is when it got branded as engagement, even though engagement existed as a kind of a notion before that. And he called it comprehensive engagement, and, and the theory was that if you trade and inter interact, China will become less indigestible and more willing to join the, the global order and the rules of the game as they existed. And he wasn't the only one who believed that. No, no. I mean, everybody believed it. So what happened was engagement used to be presupposed on opposing the Soviet Union. Soviet Union fell apart and engagement had no logic. So Clinton reinstalled a new operating system in engagement, which was built around the, the supposition, trade, interact, History is on our side. Remember when Clinton told Jiang Zemin, you're on the wrong side of history? Yeah. So that was the, the faith. And actually, maybe it was naive. I mean, I think in retrospect, it was a bit naive. But actually, it was an exercise of American leadership, too, to think that you could uh, wisely help shape and guide China as it emerged from this very intense revolutionary Leninist experience. And... I think it was a gamble worth taking. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 20 years later, I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can do what we're doing right now and look at these two summit meetings. And one you've started on already, Orville, with looking at the different leaders and their, uh, their traits and their uh, capacities. And also, of course, looking at, um, at some of the pronouncements that were made and whether they, they took root. But I think it's also just plain interesting to look at what was on the agenda then and what's on the agenda now, which says as much about the times as it does probably about the relationship. In 1998, you had human rights in Tibet, if we, as we've discussed. You had missile proliferation. And then, of course, uh, China about to join with our great help, right, the WTO. Uh, on international security issues, you had um, the India-Pakistan one front and center on the agenda. Two decades later, Trump comes to Beijing and, and meets Xi Jinping there. It's trade, 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 right? Allegations of, of unfair trade, currency issues, and some issues that really weren't in the ether or in the vocabulary even back then. Uh, cyber theft, AI, uh, 5G. And right? don't forget the South China Sea and Taiwan is heating up. Right. And now 
and Hong North Kong. Korea and, North and Korea. Hong Kong too. So, to what extent, um, whatever the engagement policy was, to what extent does an utterly different agenda for the two countries change things, or is that sort of a red herring in this discussion? So, you know, the thing about the Jiang Zemin era was they had the the, the slogan was peaceful development, peaceful rise. You know, and then, you know, keep your head down and bide your time. Don't do anything muscular. Don't be thumping your chest. Don't be going around the world making trouble and that scaring That was a Deng Xiaoping idea too, wasn't that it? That was a Deng Xiaoping yeah. idea. Now, admittedly, it was a temporary notion that, that why you had to, you, 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 you tempered your, your sort of global uh, posture. So what changed with Xi Jinping was that um, he came in after the economic crisis of 2008 and 9, and I think he came in not being a sophisticated cosmopolitan person. No, doesn't speak any foreign language, never studied abroad, never had experience abroad. He's very much a homegrown leader. So he, I think, thought, aha, American decline. And at the same time, he had his China dream, and what was that about? the rejuvenation of China, of China's new restoration as a great power with wealth and power at its disposal. So I think he was sort of deceived a, a bit by that combination of things into thinking, well, maybe the moment has come now for China to stick its head up and not bide its time. And then there was all this talk about China has a, there's an expression in China, the Zhongguo Fang An, which means the China, not exactly a model, the China option. Maybe China had discovered the way to, to develop for itself and possibly even other countries. It had done so well. So there was a bit of overweening ambition, maybe arrogance about China's possibility of being the ascendant power. And then that sort of set off the, it, from there on, we began to unravel this notion that we could converge, we could, that collaboration, cooperation, and trade were a, kind of a, a solvent of our differences. And we began to find the differences becoming more exaggerated, and China less and less sort of agreeable to give a little and get a little play by the existing rules of the trade system and the world order, and wanting to, to, to influence it, some justification for that, and wanting to play a, a much more prominent role. And that was sort of the beginning, sort of the first shot fired into the bow of engagement, which made it very hard to believe we were still coming together. And then without that notion of coming together, engagement has no logic. We're going to take a short break here and talk about Chinafile, the online publication of the Center on U.S.-China Relations. Since its launch in 2013, Chinafile has brought weekly conversation on current events in China, featuring the world's leading experts on the country, and has also published groundbreaking essays and reports from journalists based around the world. To learn more, visit Chinafile.com. That's www.chinafile.com. And now let's get back to Tom Nagorski and Orville Shell. Okay, so Donald Trump comes to the same setting, sees Orville Shell there because you're always there, right? Uh, November 2017. He's been in office almost to the day one year. 
or, or one year since his election. And uh, Xi Jinping at this point is about halfway through, assuming it's going to be a 10-year tenure, and I guess it's another conversation whether that's the case or not. Uh, but he's five years in. And I guess the point you're making here, right, is that Donald Trump is coming not only to a totally different China in terms of its strength and its economic growth, they're about to catch us, but also in terms of its confidence as a nation and, as you said, it's embodied in his leader. Uh, so to what extent does this change the dynamic? Forget for a moment, we'll get to in a second, th what, what Donald Trump is bringing to this, but uh, it's a whole different thing in terms of the Chinese attitude. Your fellow scholar Richard McGregor said recently, China today is far less willing to hide its disdain for its critics. Yes, I mean, this is part of the China dream, that China should no longer uh, apologize for who it is. It had the resources and the military power to throw its weight around a little, and uh, it didn't see any reason to be accommodating in any way to the order as it existed because it didn't feel it needed to. But the problem was that the U.S.-China relationship depended on a certain flexibility and depended on this notion that somehow we were heading in the same direction in certain ways that reassured people that it was uh, worthwhile keeping on uh, trading and interacting. And I think one of the major catalytic uh, 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 sort of elements in this change was the South China Sea, where China under Hu Jintao, and then expanded by uh, Xi Jinping. They just keep said, building up these. They said, yeah. this is a core interest. There's an, a word in Chinese, he xin li yi, which means we don't negotiate. And so what's a core interest? Taiwan, Hong Kong, Tibet, Xinjiang. Basically, what the core interest says, this is ours, get off my ranch. We can discuss no other discussion. things, maybe. Other right. things, not this. So that just threw a giant wrench in the works because the South China Sea goes all the way to Indonesia. And China basically was declaring what in, was inside the, that so-called nine-dash line is theirs. Now, just to push back a little bit, Donald Trump didn't come, the, the U.S. side did not come in November of 2017 hollering, at least not publicly, about the South China Sea or about Taiwan or certainly not about Xinjiang. Well, he what did they, make a phone call to Taiwan. Correct. Right, 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 right. But it, fair to say that most of what they, uh, what the U.S. side came, and certainly Donald Trump, um, came to talk about and, and uh, fulminate about, I guess you could say, were these economic issues and to some extent tech issues and all the rest. Before we get into detail on those, why not, to play devil's advocate here, why not come with the posture that, okay, China has advanced remarkably since Bill Clinton was here. China is, you know, on a par almost with the United States in terms of its economic place and stature on the globe. And we should come recognizing that. And it is fair for them to feel that they're not, uh, you know, they're not to be pushed around anymore. Because I think Trump's assumption it grew out of people like Steve Bannon, Peter Navarro, Lighthizer, was that the U.S. had been taken. And the playing field wasn't level, 
and the U.S. national interest was being violated repeatedly, whether it's in trade or whatever, cybersecurity, you name it. And actually, the, the change had already begun under Obama, right. Kurt Campbell and the pivot to Asia, which was a recognition that things were out of balance and had to be put back in balance or the engagement policy that we adopted for decades wouldn't function. So when Trump came in, he was really the first person, uh, not to say that we are out of balance, but to say this isn't working. Engagement is dysfunctional for American interest. And he said it loudly and clearly, and Bannon says China's the enemy. Right. Well, and actually, uh, you made the point earlier that Bill Clinton, as a candidate, was talking about the butchers of Beijing, and there he goes. It is China bashing has a very long history on the campaign trail in this country. We're seeing it again now in a bipartisan way. But I guess you could say Donald Trump distinguishes himself, right? Because he's a China basher on the campaign trail. He's a China basher as a president. Yes. Now, I think China bashing is not a, not a particularly helpful description of what goes on because I think everybody agrees now. I mean, Democrats and Republicans, and one of the startling things is that we have a bipartisan consensus growing in Washington on China, is that quite apart from China bashing, there, is, there are manifold inequities. And there has been the United States through seven presidents since Nixon that have been the ones who have had to make the most accommodations to keep the so-called relationship on the rails and not blow it up. And I think what Trump, his whole MO is, we're not going to do this alone anymore. If China wants to get along, China wants to be in the trading system with us, if it wants to be in our universities, if it wants to be a partner, it's got to start making concessions too to make this thing viable. Otherwise, engagement is dead. Okay. Now, come back to November 2017, if we can, if you can. Uh, in Beijing, we talked about how two decades prior, there was this unbelievable, at the time, candor, the public press conference and everything else, and a very, very open uh, and candid exchange about issues that really did divide the two nations pretty profoundly. What's it like in an atmospheric sense? You're there in Beijing. Uh, is, <laughs> I mean, tons have changed as, as we've discussed in terms of the issues, but what about just the plain old symmetry and atmospherics that November in Beijing? Well, it was very claustrophobic. There was very little meaningful exchange. I mean, one thing I will say to Trump's credit was that even as he turned up the heat in terms of hostility towards China on trade and other things, he did keep the relationship with Xi, the personal relationship, open. And they kept saying, he's my friend, we get along fine, he's great. But if you watch the two interact, you saw none of the elan and the excitement and actually the real pleasure that you could see with Clinton and Jiang Zemin, or Deng Xiaoping and Carter, or even Mao and Nixon. And Nixon. Sure, there was. It was very ritualistic, very cool, very sort of uh, uh, frozen in a certain ceremonial aspect. And these things matter, right? I mean, people. You know, going back to Soviet summits. My gosh, I mean, acres of newsprint were spent on 
those kind of atmospheric questions. And when you're talking about the United States and China, these things matter, right? They do matter because they, they, they suggest the, this is where leadership plays a role. And they suggest the temper of the leaders in terms of wanting to bond and work things out. And their reading of whether they can do it or not, or whether they're being pushed or played or obstructed or whatever. So there was none of that in evidence uh, beyond the ceremonial aspect when, when Trump met, met, met Xi. And it's so strange, actually, as you say that, I'm thinking about the fact that there was quite a bit of that kind of uh, positive relationship, Elan, whatever you want to call it, when Trump went and saw Kim Jong-un in Singapore and then <laughs> Hanoi. I mean, that's a whole other subject. But back to the leaders. Uh, I don't think our listeners really need uh, to be schooled on how Donald Trump and Bill Clinton are different. Or if so, they can get that schooling elsewhere. But you can provide, you've provided some already, some, some great insight on Jiang Zemin and Xi Jinping. Because, you know, a, a lot of uh, Americans and people around the world might be forgiven for thinking a Chinese leader is a kind of cookie cutter thing and up through the ranks and all that. They're pretty different, profoundly different yeah. human beings, are they not? Very much. I mean, uh, Deng Xiaoping was a person of manifest self-confidence. Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping. Right. Yeah. And he also was a person, he was a real leader. I mean, yes, he had that terrible nightmare of the massacre in 89, but he, he broke the mold. And actually, so did Nixon and Kissinger, and so did Carter. It was not easy for Carter to recognize China in 1979. So that, th those are the moments when China and the United States have found a way around their different systems and values, which are in utter contradiction. And this is what Xi Jinping, I think, is not interested in doing, or at least doesn't know how to do. I'm not sure Trump does either, but I think they missed an incomparable chance under Obama. They had eight years of people begging them to give a little and work it out with America. Begging the Chinese. Begging the Chinese. I mean, Hillary Clinton came to the Asia Society, gave a speech when she first came into office saying, we did not want to have human rights obstruct our right, ability right. to deal with other issues. And she tried and tried and tried and tried, and they, they'd have none of it. They didn't like her. They thought she was a human rights activist, and they just, they just stiffed her. Is it too simplistic then to look at Trump and Xi in 2017 and see a, on the one hand, a Chinese leader who's feeling his oats or whatever you want to say, feeling strong, confident, and... Uh, but strong and confidence built on a profound sense of weakness, which is often the worst kind of confidence because it, it manifests itself as kind of hubris. Okay. But coming, whether it's hubris or actual confidence and strength on the one hand, and here's an American president, I take your point, you don't want to call it China bashing, but who, for the first time in maybe in modern history, is coming and going to go full bore with the points made as a candidate about attacking China on points X, Y, and Z. So you have... Is that just the misreading on both sides, misreading on one? It's, it's a recipe for something not great, which I guess is where we are now. I think there are tragic flaws on both sides. The tragic flaw on China's side is the inability to recognize how much is at stake and that flexibility is the heart of good diplomacy 
and, and national interest is often served by making compromises. The tragedy on Trump's side is not that he's misidentified Chinese intentions or the fact that the playing field was grossly out of level, unreciprocal, and needed fixing. It was that he hasn't got a clue, once you challenge the other side, how to put the thing back together again. And that's, that's the, the tragic flaw on, on Trump's side is what do you do when you decide engagement doesn't work? What's your policy? You challenge them and then what? Okay, well that, Orville Shell, is a great moment to turn it back on you then, because after all, we work at the Asia Society and we're in the business of trying at least to find some bridges that can be built or mended or whatever you want to say. You've written, you and a task force of, of other brilliant folks in this country who watch this uh, day in, day out, uh, you, you've had a whole paper recently that argues for what I think you call smart competition between the two countries. Not smart engagement, I know, but smart competition. Uh, our colleague Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister of Australia, who runs our policy uh, institute here, uh, has uh, spoken and written about what he calls the avoidable war. So those both in their own ways are roadmaps for, I guess, some greater engagement. What's the remedy here? I mean, I think here is where leadership, I think, is so important because when you have two countries that have such demonstrably different and contradictory political systems and value systems, if you don't have good leadership to sort of say, all right, we'll cooperate here, we'll compete here, but we will not go to war there, uh, you have a very dire situation. And what I fear now is neither of our leaders are capable of putting the relationship back together in a new format, which, which embraces China's rise and the different systems and values and keeps us out of critical areas. Now, this requires both sides to be flexible. But China, by declaring core interests, denies itself the flexibility to be, to be able to make the kinds of accommodations. And I think the United States actually, and I, you know, I'm a stern critic of my own country, I think the United States in the last seven presidential administrations has bent over backwards to find some accommodation in a very trying circumstance. Trump, not so much. But Trump's, own, Trump's virtue is he recognized the situation was unsustainable and out of balance. And are there, in terms of issues, uh, are there areas that you see, looking far and wide, pushing the envelope a little bit, where there may be, to use an old phrase, common ground? You, you uh, were quite active for a while, uh, I think, during the Obama years because there was fertile ground for this, that there might be an accommodation or cooperation on climate issues. Well, there was. Right. And we, we know that on the U.S. side, that's, that's not, a, not, not much of a starter right now. Well, are, there, are so there, right there, you have, you're dead on arrival, okay, right? Okay, but, but we're hunting for some silver linings here. Yeah. Where do you think uh, there might be? I mean, I sometimes think that, uh, unfortunately, it might take a crisis that is not in China or the United States that might, uh, something global that might really bring the two countries together. But do you see any small or large issue areas, um, avenues where at least some accommodations could be made that would at least lower the temperature a little bit? Well, I think, you know, 
anti-terrorism was one area, but unfortunately, because of the Uyghur situation in Xinjiang and China's posture towards Muslims, that was very difficult to affect any kind of a, a partnership. Uh, the anti-nuclear question with Korea had some promise because China didn't want to see a nuclear North Korea. Uh, but I do think climate change is the biggest and most obvious challenge. It's just that the U.S. doesn't recognize it now. And China, I think, actually is missing an opportunity to play an even greater leadership role in this area if, if it chose to do so. Uh, but short of that, I just don't see what the new Soviet Union is that could bring us together. I, su I suppose on the climate point, um, not to prognosticate too much here on, on the American political front, but uh, a, a leader, we could have a new leader, of course, in uh, a little over a year who, who, you know, and that climate thing could, could come back into play as, a, as some mortar for the bridge building of the U.S.-China relationship. It could, Tom. And I mean, I think we have to remember that we have been in impasses like this several times before. 1989 was one. Uh, uh, 1979 was one. 1972 was another. And we did manage to break through. You could have argued, right? In June 1989, engagement was dead. Yes. But actually, Bush sent Scowcroft to China. He did have to pander. But he did, I mean, that's another story, but there was a rescue there that Bush played a very powerful role in, and then Deng and Zhang picked it up after that. Um, so it's, it's important to remember that engagement may be dead for now, but a lot of the incipient support for it still remain in China. It's just that Xi Jinping has a, is having a difficult time getting back to it because he, he feels spurned, he feels disrespected, he feels that the U.S. is not, not willing to, to show him the proper deference. And Trump has his own set of problems that make it very difficult for him to come back. So we're in a very, we're in a situation where the leaders seem to be losing the capacity to find that new kind of paradigm shifting common ground. And that's what's so alarming about now. And we don't have this. I mean, engagement was an astounding policy because it lasted for so long and everybody bought into it in one way or another. So reaching here before we uh, let you go, Orville Shell, for uh, uh, one more stab at a silver lining. If we're looking, we've been looking at two summits 20 years apart. Let's say we have a uh, 2040 or so summit, a couple of leaders in the U.S. and China whose names we probably don't know right now. Uh, what's a headline that you, on the good side of the ledger, that you could see written um, that might make us or our children feel a little better? If we can avoid some problem in the South China Sea, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, then we may be able to allide through this period of tension to a place where we would find some other cause to join forces. And if I was Trump and I was uh, Xi Jinping I think the only thing that's left to do now is if each would appoint some trusted plenipotentiary to set up a very small team in each side to look at alternative scenarios on an emergency basis. Take two weeks, then get together for a week with the two teams and compare roadmaps, see if there's anything we can agree, agree on, any off-ramps to the, to, the, to the sort of collapse in the relationship. Short of that, 
uh, I think the, the, the signs are not, uh, not, don't leave me filled with much optimism. All right. I'll stop my search for silver linings, Orville Shell. <laughs> thank you so much for the time. It's always interesting. Always a pleasure to talk. Thank well, you. Great, great fun, Tom. Thanks. That'll do it for this week's episode of Asia In Depth. To learn more, check out our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. We're going to take a short holiday season break. For our next episode in January, we're going to bring you a conversation between Tom Nagorski and Thant Mian U, a leading expert on his native Myanmar. Here's a sneak peek. And you have to ask yourself, even if Facebook didn't exist, even if social media in Burma didn't exist, even if that kind of, you know, sort of general feelings in, in Rangoon about Islamic terrorism didn't exist, would the same thing has happened? And I think it's possible because all we have to look at is the record of 70 years of insurgency and counterinsurgency. Mm-hmm. I'm Michelle Florcruz. See you in 2020.